a little while ago through the book of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, you can join us there. 1 John, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 today. 1 John 3 verses 4 to 7. 1 John 3 verses 4 to 7. We titled this series that we're going through 1 John for His glory and for our benefit. Thankfully, the Word of God is designed that way. Did you know that? The Word of God is designed to glorify God's great name, and it's also designed to benefit us, God's people. And so in 1 John, we're finding that in every single lesson that we go through, something that glorifies God and also something that benefits our souls. And so today is going to be no different than that. We're going to find both of those in this passage today. The lesson title today is going to be called Overcoming Lawlessness. Overcoming Lawlessness. And again, we'll be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. And we'll get there here in a little bit. But before we get there, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you enjoy getting old? Is it fun to get old? It can be. It can be. Absolutely. That's right. There's advantages to getting old. Of course, your wisdom grows. But there's a few things in life that get harder the older you get. I want you to think of a couple in your mind right now. What gets harder the older you get. I'm going to give you a list of things that I've discovered. Now, I would not consider myself old, but I am aging, and I get to understand a little, bit, a little few of these things as I age into my 40s. Now, everything's getting a little harder than it used to be when I was in my 20s and 30s. I'm going to give you a list of things that get harder the older you get. Number one, you would not expect this, but eating food gets harder the older you get. Isn't that weird? Just eating food now is harder. Why? Because you can't have spicy foods. Can't have caffeine after 4 p.m., anyone? Yeah, I see those hands. Can only eat stuff like fake sugar and fake butter. Sometimes you're too tired to cook. Anyone been there? Too tired to make food? That's right. That's right. Where's the takeout? Where's the TV dinners? And you need Tums by your bed. Anyone else? Tums by the bed. I've now entered that category. I have the Tums right in the drawer there for easy access, just in case. So eating food gets tougher the older you get. Here's another one, exercise. Exercise gets harder the older you get, and I wish it wasn't that way, but we want to stay in shape, but exercise is hard because the older you get, you don't have any time, you're low on energy, you can't remember, <laughs> you have good intentions, but you can't remember, sometimes you get injured working out, anyone been there, and sometimes you can't get off the floor when you're done. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Uh, remember that commercial, ow, I injured myself and I can't get up? Here's another one that gets harder the older you get. Looking young, it just does. I don't look young like I used to. And the reason for that is because you got hair in all the wrong places. Freckles turn into suspicious moles. You can't see five feet in front of you without glasses. Your body's making all kinds of strange noises. And you consider getting Velcro shoes because it's hard to tie your shoes. It's hard to look young when, you old, when you're getting old. Here's another one, memory. Memory. It's hard to remember the older you get. And the reason for that is because sometimes you just forget things that are commonly known in your mind, like your own telephone number. Can't remember your own telephone number or what you ate yesterday. Anyone, if I asked you what you ate yesterday, would you have to think about it for a couple moments? Yeah, or uh, why you got in the car. That happened to me the other day. I got in the car and said, where am I going? Uh, I know, I have eight kids. Some of that's included in that, you know. They steal all that from me. Sometimes you forget what three grocery items you needed, and you come home with three different ones, or 12 different ones, and you forget who your emergency contact is. That's a real bad day right there. 
Here's another one that gets harder the older you get, driving. Driving gets hard the older you get, and it's because things like this happen. You can't drive in the rain, or if it's too cloudy, or too dark, or too sunny. Sometimes you can't pull into a space. Sometimes you can't back out of a space. Sometimes you can't see your blind spots because you're actually becoming blind. And you hate all Massachusetts drivers. That has nothing to do with age, though, does it? That's just, we don't actually don't hate Massachusetts drivers, for the record. Uh, here's another one that gets harder the older you get. Reading. Reading gets tougher. People like to read. Who's our readers out there like to read? But it, the older you get, the tougher reading becomes because you can't see. You can't stay focused. You forgot what happened on the last page. You forgot what the title of the book is. You end up daydreaming because you actually fell asleep for four hours and you drooled all over the pages. Hopefully it's not that bad. Here's no one that should not be hard, but for some reason it is the older you get, sleeping. That should not be hard. It's literally laying there doing nothing. And yet it's hard because sometimes you ate too late or you drank too late or you stayed up too late or you went to bed too early <laughs> or you have to use the bathroom four times or you stopped breathing for a few minutes and you got scared by that or your own snoring woke you up. Anyone been there? <laughs> Here's another one that gets harder the older you get, having friends. It's hard to have friends when you get older for some reason because it takes four weeks to text them back. You're older, you forget, things get busy. Sometimes you hold on to a grudge from college. You can't stay up past nine. You can't get up before 11. There's a short window of friends. You're an introvert. They're introverts. You owe them money. They owe you money. You forgot their birthday and now they're ghosting you. All kinds of bad things can happen when you try to have friends. Here's number nine. Number nine is very obvious. Staying healthy. As you notice, I have a weird swollen eye. You're probably all looking at that eye right now going, what's going on with that guy? I'm in my 40s, okay? That's what happened. I'm in my 40s, and it's hard to stay healthy the older you get because sometimes you get injured. Waking up. <laughs> lying down. Standing up. Walking to the bathroom. You can't eat bread. Can't eat dairy. Can't eat seafood. Can't eat anything with eggs, soy, or peanuts. You can't stand up without getting dizzy. You can't sit down without getting blood clots. Your left leg has been numb since Christmas and you're afraid to Google your symptoms. It's hard to stay healthy the older you get. Here's another one, going to church. Yeah, I had to go there. Going to church gets harder the older you get. I'll give you a little bit more grace, people, but uh, this is why sometimes you oversleep. That happens sometimes, right? Sometimes you forget to go to church. Sometimes you remember, but you get injured getting dressed. Um, you get dressed, but your car breaks down on the way. You make it to church, but you leave because someone takes your seat. We all like to sit in the same seat, right? Put our names on the seat. Sometimes you get your seat, but you don't know any of the songs, and that frustrates you. You love the music, but the pastor's icebreaker is lame, like maybe today. You love the pastor, but the people are weird. You love the people, but the pastor announced that they need help in the children's ministry, and now you have to leave really fast in case he asks you on the way out. It's hard to do things when you get older for some reason. Well, there's one today that we're going to focus on a little bit today, and it's righteousness. It's hard sometimes to be righteous. And we're going to talk about a secret, and I believe it is a secret, to overcoming lawlessness and living righteously. If you'll join me in 1 John chapter 3, we're going to read our text today. I've encouraged you to read 1 John once a week. Hopefully some of you are doing that. I think it's going to be beneficial for you if you read 1 John every week, once a week. 
I'm doing that. It's been a very good practice for me. I'm noticing a lot more than I do if I simply just read a small portion. So we do encourage that to read 1 John once a week if you can. Let's go through our text together. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. That's our text today. We're calling it Overcoming Lawlessness. Now we've also encouraged you when you're reading the Word of God is do your very best to keep what you're reading in the context of the entire book and even the entire scriptures. And so even though we're biting off little portions of 1 John, we don't want to forget where John has brought us this far. We don't want to forget the context. So we're going to look at our last week's passage very briefly, just read where John was talking about last week. It's 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. This is what John told us the last time we were together. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we sinners should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that practical purity today as we talk about lawlessness and righteousness. We have a three-point outline. If you've got the sheets, your blue sheets have this on there as well. This is the outline we want to work through today. Number one is defining sin. What is sin? We'll be very clear on that because the scripture helps us. Number two, what should our relationship to sin be or look like? And number three, how do we overcome lawless living? That's our outline today. Let's start with number one, defining sin. You could probably define this on your own if I asked you. What is sin? Well, sin is breaking God's commandments. Sin is doing anything contrary to how God is or how he's taught us to be. But the scripture tells us a little bit differently here in 1 John what sin is. And John gets right in here saying, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Now, yes, that's a little bit differently than just sinning on occasion, slip and fall along the way. A practice of sinning looks like a habit. Don't answer this out loud, but does anyone have bad habits? You have any bad habits still hanging on there? We all do, right? We don't want to admit it, but sometimes we have bad habits like biting your nails or smoking, drinking, overeating, indulging yourself. Sometimes bad habits are hard to break, right? Well, John is talking about a habit. He's talking about the practice of sinning, and this is a really very big thing and very dangerous thing that John is bringing up here today. He's talking about a sinful lifestyle that becomes a practice of our lives. And he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices something called lawlessness. In fact, John goes so far as to say sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is. It's lawlessness. Now, I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word lawless, but here's what immediately popped in my mind as soon as I thought about the word lawless. In fact, let's define it before we get there. Lawless, I looked up the definition in the internet and it said this. Number one, contrary to or without regard for the law. Basically, anti-law. 
The number two definition is very similar, but kind of different also. It says being without law, uncontrolled by a law, unbridled, unruly, unrestrained. This could be no law. That's what John is calling sin. Sin is lawlessness. It's living as if you're against the law. It's living as if there is no law. And again, I asked you, what comes into your mind when you think of the word lawless? Well, this is what came into my mind. The wild, wild west. Right? This is a time in our culture where the law was a very loose thing. Right? If you didn't like someone, you shot them down. And the people did not live long in the wild, wild west because the law was very loose and maybe not even existent. There were sheriffs and things like that, but if you do a little bit of history in the wild, wild west, is people kind of did whatever they wanted. Well, there's another group of people who kind of go by that mantra. Children. I have eight children, which means I have eight lawless people in my house sometimes. It doesn't mean there is no law. It means they're anti-law, or they're acting as if there is no law. And this poor guy taped to the wall. I hope, I, hope that's, I hope that's fake. I hope that's staged. I believe that it is. But Children can be lawless. In fact, all of us can be lawless, right? We can act like there's no law, and that's what John is saying that sin is. It's a very big deal. Sometimes we're very insignificant, small, trite about sin, but God is not. God is not because he's perfectly righteous. We talked about that a few lessons ago, that God is righteous in all that he does. And John is bringing up this concept of living like there's no law. Spiritually speaking. We're not talking about the physical laws of the land, although that could apply as well. But John's talking about acting as if there's no law of God. And he says those who practice sin are practicing that kind of lawlessness before God. There's a couple common misconceptions before we move on about the law that I want to clear up. And we don't have a ton of time to look at this. But I do want to look at these because I think these are kind of hanging around our culture misconceptions about the law, that perhaps, number one, there's no law for Christians anymore. Now, that might not be in your circles that you've run in in Christianity throughout your life, but I have seen it up close. This concept that once Christ came and once Christ died for our sins, there is no law for Christians anymore, and we are just forgiven people who just do our thing. Is that really what Christianity is? Well, no, because the scripture is very clear. And where people get this concept is from a verse, most primarily in Romans chapter 6, where it says this, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, notice it, but under grace. Perhaps Paul is saying we are lawless because we're now under grace and not under the law. Is that what Paul is saying? That the law is no, not, no longer needed for Christians? Once you're saved, you don't need the law? You just go back to your life? The law is really for those who are anti-Christ? No, I don't believe so. Because if you look at the context of this verse you'll see it quite differently some people think that's what jesus meant when he died on the cross and he said this phrase it is finished i have died for your sins i have completed the law therefore the law is no more it is finished no more law is needed i've done everything game over well i think what christ was primarily referring to when he said that is the redemptive work is finished everything i've done for you in order for you to be saved and find a right relationship with god is finished you can be saved simply by believing in jesus and we're going to talk about the difference between the law getting us to faith and the law once we have faith i do not believe jesus was saying we don't need a law anymore because if you look at the new, Te the new testament here's that passage passage uh, that we just referred to where paul says we're not under the law but we're under grace he says in romans 6 let me read a couple verses listen to what the language and see if you can find 
what he's basically telling us. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for what? For righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Is Paul saying there's no law anymore for Christians? On the contrary. He's saying now that you are under grace, you have the ability to do something you couldn't do before. Obey. Before you were enslaved to the sin that once owned you, the devil that once owned you, whatever he wanted you to do, he convinced you to do, and you did it because you were truly lawless. And Paul is now saying, listen, we're not under the power of the law anymore. We're under something much more powerful and significant. That is the grace of God. And the grace of God can help us do things that before was, was impossible for sinners to do. Let sin not reign in our mortal body. Do not obey its passions. Present ourselves to God. That's what grace enables us to do. It doesn't mean there's no law. It means we are under the power of something new and God-given that can change our lives and how we think and how we function. That's misconception number one. I wish we had more time to look at that. One day we probably will. Another misconception is this, that Jesus was a rebel in regard to the law. That Jesus was kind of like a Fonzie character back then. Do you remember Fonzie in Happy Days? Kind of did what he wanted, kind of lived by his own code. And maybe Jesus was like that. He was a rebel, right? Jesus just did whatever he wanted. He was against the system, against the law, against religion entirely. That's a common misconception. It's around today that Jesus is a rebel. Was Jesus a rebel? I would say yes and no to that. I would say Jesus was a rebel to sin, to the devil, to the false religion around. But was Jesus a rebel to God's law? May it never be. No, he wasn't. And a couple of instances you find this in Scripture where people are confused about this concept and Jesus looked, maybe, to be lawless. If you remember, the disciples are eating the grain on the Sabbath day. Remember that? And the disciples get all, excuse me, the Pharisees get all hot and bothered by this, going, they're breaking the Sabbath, Jesus. Your disciples, your followers are against the Sabbath. Therefore, their, their leader, their captain, must be lawless and therefore you must not be the Christ and we're not going to follow you. That was their train of thinking. But Jesus had to explain to the Pharisees that the disciples were not breaking the commandment of the Sabbath. On the contrary, they were upholding it. And he says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was a gift of God to man to help them rest and nourish themselves. So by the disciples eating the grain, Jesus was not lawless. His disciples were not lawless. They were holding to the spirit of the law of the Sabbath day which is as a gift from God to help you nourish your body and your mind and your spirit so that you can obey the other six days. Another instance is the disciples were not washing their hands before they eat. Now, that might be a gross practice of hygiene, but the Pharisees were all hot and bothered because the, they were not holding to the traditions of the Jewish system of the Pharisees. And so once again, it looked like Jesus' men were lawless and Jesus himself was lawless. And Jesus basically had to tell these people, you're holding your traditions above the commandments of God. These traditions that you're holding to and holding us to were not specifically mentioned in God's moral law, but you're nullifying the moral law of God and you're holding your tradition above it. Jesus was not lawless. On the contrary, they were lawless. 
Jesus was the perfect law keeper. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, he said this. He said, I have come not to abolish the law. On the contrary, I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to establish the law. I've come to enforce the law. I've come to show you exactly what the law was always meant to do. I've come to explain the law. Was Jesus lawless? No, he was not. He was the perfect law keeper. And that's why he's the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It's because he kept God's law every moment of his life. This passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount and where Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. And I think he's saying that in a tender way. I'm not coming to be a rebel. I'm not coming to abolish the law or the prophets. On the contrary, I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. I've come to show you the right way how to obey the law, the right way how to think about the law. I've come to establish the better way. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot of the law will pass until it all is accomplished. See how you can angle it a different way and you look at it like Jesus is lawless when on the, on the contrary, Jesus is the perfect law keeper. In fact, he came to shepherd his people the right way. He says in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes on the least of one of these commandments. Now, we need to be careful what we call the law. The law is not our druthers. The law is not what we think about religion. The law is not what our pastor tells us unless it comes out of the word of God. The law is the commandments of God. The very moral law that he gave us back in the tablets of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says, if you relax on one of these commandments, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was not lawless. His people were not lawless. His disciples were not lawless. Jesus was the perfect law keeper. And it was Jesus who gave us this law and stamped this law as if it was to say, if you learn anything about the law, learn these two things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is not a rebel. Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the shepherd of this world. And he was the true law keeper. So when he came, he came to show us the proper way to think about the law and to practice the law. Now, it does say this in Scripture, and we need to hold this in, um, in I'll say, like a, a strain or stress. We'll put these two on opposite sides, but they work together. It does say in Scripture that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I mean, that's verbatim in Scripture. Christ is the end of the law. Therefore, you can make the conclusion, if you gloss over that, that, again, there is no law, and therefore there's no law for Christians as long as you believe. I can see how people arrive at that. But I think what Jesus is primarily saying is the, Christ is the end of the law in our way of getting to God, our way of establishing our righteousness in our way of getting favor with God, earning our righteousness before God. That is not how we're saved. Jesus came to establish the fact that he, he alone is the perfect law keeper and only he could satisfy God's demands for righteousness. So when we believe in Jesus Christ, we have the full righteousness that God expects because Jesus is the perfect law keeper. What Paul is saying is you cannot earn your way to God by keeping the law. No one's ever done it. No one ever will do it. 
We all need Jesus Christ to keep that law for us for the sake of our righteousness before God. So what he's saying there is Christ is the end of the law in an effort for us to gain merit with God. In Galatians 2, Paul kind of hashes this out even more. He says a person is not justified by works of the law. He couldn't be. Man could not be because man could never keep the law perfectly the way God demands us to keep it. There is no way anyone could be justified by trying to keep the law perfectly. And that's not what 1 John is telling us today. That we have to keep the law perfectly in order to have favor with God because we've learned time and time again the Savior had to come to this world and save us because he was the only one who could meet the demands of God's law perfectly. So we're not justified by works of the law. How are we justified? Through faith in Jesus. And that's very clear. What John is going to be teaching us today is teaching practical Christian living, as if to say, now that you're saved, and now that you're declared righteous in the eyes of God, the law can come back into the system, and we can obey it, the spirit of it, the way God intended us to keep it, by simply following his son, following his pattern, following his teachings, we can follow the law. Now James, if you read the book of James, he says this about the law. He says, whoever keeps the law, the whole law, let's assume that's possible. Let's say you keep the whole law, or you think you're keeping the whole law, but you fail in one point of it. That's not that bad, right? You ever get a 98% on a test or a 99%? That's a grade you want to run home and tell mom about, right? 99%, mom, I did really good on the test. But James says, listen, if you keep the whole law, but you fail in one point of the law, we've become guilty of all of the law. Do you see why Jesus is important? Has anyone failed keeping the law less than 100%? All of our hands should go up because we've all failed keeping the law perfectly 100%. But guess who came to be that law keeper for us, to be that righteous standard for us? James says, listen, if you, if you say do not commit adultery, you should also say do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you'll become a transgressor of the law. Now I'm going to make us squirm a little bit in our chairs. Um, have you ever broken the law of the land even by one single um, speed? Have you gone 43 and a 25? Have you gone 30 and a 25? Have you ever broken the law? And the answer is, of course we've broken the law. We haven't all got caught for breaking the law, but we have broken the law and we break the law many times. And that's not me encouraging you to break the law. I'm proving a point today that all of us are lawless by nature all of us every single one of us by trying to keep the law every single day we fail at keeping it perfectly and that puts us in a frustrating position because that means a we're sinners and god can't accept our standard of trying to be righteous but it also means that now that we're christians and we want to follow god's law it's an uphill climb isn't it it's an uphill climb to be righteous because we're sinners by nature but god's going to give us a tremendous gift today by helping us overcome lawlessness. But just so no one charges me at the end of the sermon by saying that we can be righteous according to the law and earn favor with God, earn our own salvation, I want to be very clear. The scriptures say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we try to keep the law and earn favor with God, we will all fail miserably because the standard is not kind of good. The standard is not better than your neighbor. The standard is just don't kill anybody. The standard is hit the glory of God in every aspect of your life. 
And Paul says we've all fallen short of that. Therefore, we are all, by nature, lawless. And that's hard to hear. But we have to hear it in order that we can get better. And thankfully, the scripture tells us that it doesn't have to end there because God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that Christ died for sinners. Christ died for those who are lawless because he stepped in the place of the lawless one and he paid for our debt against God. He kept the law. And now that the law has been kept, now that we have been saved, something remarkable happens. John can instruct us in practicing something different. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, we've understood that. We've understood that the commandments for us today is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That is our law. We have now defined sin. Now let's talk about a relationship to sin. And John's going to do that very thing. Now that we're saved, if you're saved, and I can't assume that you are, but assuming that you are saved and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, he tells us, you know that he, who's he talking about? Jesus. Jesus appeared. Where did he appear? On earth. Jesus came down from heaven and appeared to us in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Do you believe that about Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he was kind of moral? Do you believe that he was better than average? Do you believe that he was the perfect son of God, sinless, spotless, righteousness in everything he did? Because the scriptures made that, make that abundantly clear. Jesus was sinless and righteous in all that he did. And guess what he came to do? He came to take away sins. If you keep reading in this passage, which we'll get to next week, John's going to say this. He says, in fact, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested or appeared, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And what's at the top of the list of the works of the devil? What does he love more than anything? He loves sin more than anything. That's how he rules this world. He rules it with an iron fist, and the thing that he controls us with is our sinful passions and lusts. But thankfully, Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, the sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. See, when we're sinners and we don't have Jesus Christ, does the law help us? No, it actually hurts us. It actually makes us more sinful. Because when someone is sinful and can do nothing to remedy their own soul, and someone puts a law in front of that person, that person is going to fail time and time and time again. So Jesus came to fix that process. Because he knew that. He knew that would happen. In fact, he planned it that way so that we would look for the Savior. He sent the law to make sin abundantly sinful so that we would look for the all-sufficient Savior. And as a prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, God, after the fall of man, said this to the serpent. He said, I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, talking about who? The seed of Eve, who would eventually be the Lord Jesus Christ. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, was Jesus bruised? He was. He was bruised on the cross for our sins. He was crushed. 
His body was broken. His blood was spilled for our sins. And if that was the end of the story, all of us have a very depressing religion and a very depressing hope. But three days later, what happened to that serpent? His head was bruised. His head was crushed. The Lord Jesus Christ woke up from death and he put the final nail in the coffin for the devil by crushing his head and therefore fulfilling the prophecy of Scripture that Jesus Christ would destroy the works of the devil. In Matthew chapter 1, when you hear that uh, there's going to be a baby born, the Christmas story, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in this setting right here. He also appeared to Mary. But he appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and said this. He said, she, your wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And what will the name Jesus mean? He will save his people from their sins. That's what that name Jesus means. He is the savior of sinners. He will destroy the works of the devil if you believe in him. He will save you from your sin. Here in Romans chapter 6, we find an interesting equation. Paul says this. He says, the wages of sin is death. Sin equals death. Now, thankfully, there's no period there. There's a comma. Because he says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Sin does equal death, but God came to give us the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But how does Jesus do that for us? Well, a lot of people think this. Jesus came down and removed the consequence for our sin, which they're not wrong in. Jesus came down and removed the consequence for our sin by allowing us to be offered forgiveness of all of our sins. But if Jesus comes down and simply removes the consequence of sin, Jesus can be called complicit with our sin. Because by removing the consequence of the sin and allowing the sin to remain, we now sin with impunity. It actually increases sin upon the earth. I mean, imagine that if you did that in the courtroom setting, say, listen, for the next year, no consequence. No matter what you do, no matter how you live, we want to be merciful to the American people, so for the next year, no consequence, do whatever you want, you'll never go to jail, you'll never face any punishment. Would that be a good system? No, that'd be a horrible system, because all it would do is increase sin upon the earth. Jesus did not do it that way. Guess what he did? He destroyed the works of the devil. He came to save us from our sin because the wages of sin is death. By removing the sin and forgiving the sin, he takes us away from this equation that sin leads to death because he's going to offer us a totally new pathway of following him for the rest of our lives. We sing about this. We sing about this amazing grace. We sing about our chains being gone and us being set free. But the question is, is what are we set free from? Just from the penalty of our sin, can we just go and continue our lifestyle that's against God and just not find any penalty? Is that what we're talking about? No, what have we been set free from? We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from the power of sin. We don't have to live against God any longer. That is the slavery of all of mankind. We're against God's law. We're lawless, and Christ doesn't want us that way anymore. So he came to give us forgiveness because he did. He came to give us salvation not just from the punishment, but from the sin that was causing all the chaos. And I think that's a blessing to know from God that he removes us from the sin. And John's going to basically use this now 
and continue on this foundation. He says, no one who abides in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. You ever wondered what he meant when you read that, going, how is that possible? Every one of us, we, Pastor just said it, every one of us does not live perfectly righteous every day of our lives. So therefore, don't we keep on sinning? Therefore, if we do keep on sinning and we break the law, even by one aspect, is John saying that we don't abide in him? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying if nothing changes in your life and you continue on the path that you were on before you trusted in Jesus Christ, it cannot be so that you're abiding in him. No one who abides in him goes and continues on the same path that they were before they trusted in Jesus. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now that is a foundational gospel truth that we need to understand. And we're going to use a term that we use all the time when we talk about the gospel called repentance. Maybe you've heard that term before. Repentance is this concept right here being played out practically. That when Christ comes to save us from our sins, he tells us, I will forgive you. All of them. All of the sins you've ever committed. I will forgive every morsel of sin you've ever done against God, but I need you to do something. I need you to turn around. I need you to stop going on the wide path of sin, and I need you to turn around and start following the narrow path of righteousness. And that's what John is telling us today. We can't continue in sin. We can't continue practicing lawlessness and expect to find heaven because the wages of sin is death. Jesus did not come to change the equation. He came to offer us a new pathway. He came by telling us, listen, turn around. I will save you. I will cleanse you head to toe, inside and out. You will be spotless before God because of what I've done on the cross. But from this moment on, you cannot continue following sin for the remainder of your life. In fact, you're going to follow someone totally different. Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but what is the reward of following Jesus? Do you see how they're totally different pathways? Jesus did not come to change the equation. If he changes the equation, everything gets topsy-turvy. If he says, listen, sin doesn't equal death anymore, then we all just go and sin and continue in sin and the world gets worse and worse and worse. He did not come to change the equation. He came to remove us off that horrible, sinful, deadly path by offering us a brand new way to walk. Now, again, this does not the way that we find favor with God. We find favor with God simply by looking to Jesus and believing in him. And he makes us spotless in the eyes of God. But then something else must take place. We must become brand new creatures. In fact, the Bible talks about this so many times. In John 3, 3, a most amazing passage of scripture, he's talking to a man called Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him, Verily, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again. Brand new, a total new transformation and regeneration. And of course, it's not talking about a physical born again. Jesus is talking about a spiritual transformation and renewal. By being born again, we become brand new creatures. Creatures that can think differently, reason differently, love different things, hate different things, and walk on a totally new path than we ever walked on before. Jesus came to make us brand new in the eyes of God. Paul handles this because he can understand by talking about how, how amazing grace is and how amazing righteousness is that we find in God through Jesus. 
He understands that we can fall down a slippery path if we, if we aren't careful. So by understanding righteousness, that we find a righteousness with God, Paul wants to warn us of some possible pitfall that can come into our mind. That perhaps we say this. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The reason is this, is if God loves grace so much, if he loves to forgive sinners so much, maybe the best thing we can do is continue in sin so that God has to give more grace. Because if grace glorifies God, the more we sin, the more grace he gives, God gets glorified more and more and more. And Paul says, no, wrong, wrong logic. He says, how can we who died to sin, those who are born again, still live in it? And the answer is, we cannot. Because we have been born of God. And anyone who is born of God must start to follow Jesus Christ, who, remember, was not a rebel according to the law. He was a rebel according to sin and a rebel according to false religion. But he was the perfect law keeper. And when we say we follow Jesus Christ, like on that wall back there, come and follow me, how do we start to live? We start to live like Jesus. We start to live like Jesus. And Jesus is spotless and righteous in everything that he does. And the more that we follow him, the more righteous we look, the more righteous we are, practically speaking. Therefore, we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And I hope that's a reality for you. I hope that you understand that you don't have to be the person you were before. Now, I misunderstood that. I was one of these people, one of these poster boys for misunderstanding that because from ages 5 to 26, I honestly thought that no matter what I did, it didn't matter because I had this stamp of forgiveness that I'm just going to show God at the end of the day going, it doesn't matter how I lived. I was against your law. I did bad things. Yeah, I hurt people the entirety of my life. It doesn't matter because at age five, I got my hand stamped, God, let me into heaven. And that's when God at age 26 said, Todd, you don't understand properly. Yes, I came to forgive you, but I also came to change you. I came to, I came to make you brand new, to change, your, to change your character, to change your habits, and to make you follow my son through following his obedience. Therefore, you are dead to sin and alive in Christ, and you have to turn around, Todd. We've talked about sin. We've talked about a relationship to sin. Let's end on this today. How do we overcome lawlessness? Because it's tough. I told We talked about 10 things that get harder the older you get. Living righteously is hard. And maybe you don't expect a pastor to say that, but I mean it. Living righteously is hard even for pastors. It's tough to do the right thing at all times because we have an enemy and we have a flesh and we have things working against us. But John's going to help us today. He says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now again, he doesn't say whoever is perfectly righteous is righteous as he is righteous. He says whoever practices righteousness. And he also doesn't say whoever practices righteousness finds God's favor. He says whoever practices righteousness is seen as a follower of Jesus. Because the only way that you could live righteously is by Jesus Christ, by watching him, listening to him, obeying him, following his pattern, listening to his teaching. So John says, listen, don't let anyone deceive you. If you practice righteousness, you are saved. You are born again. You are regenerated. You are brand new in the eyes of God if you practice righteousness. Now, even that is a process, and we're going to talk about that because John's not going to leave us hanging here today. 
Um, just to break the, the tense mood here a little bit because this is so serious and heavy. Do you guys remember this game, The Floor is Lava, growing up? No one remembers The Floor is Lava. My kids play this game now. Anyone remember The Floor is Lava? All right, here's our young people over here. Everyone was here looking at me like I'm Chinese or something. The Floor is Lava is a game that's basically a simple concept, okay? Basically, stay off the floor when the floor is lava, okay? It, when, the, when the person who's leading the game says the floor is lava, you've got to get off the floor and you've got to get onto something safe, okay? In fact, for those who haven't played, I know, you probably never thought this would happen, but I want to play right now. The floor is lava. Let's see it. The floor is lava. Good job. Good job. Little mood breaker there. Sorry, Paul Connett. You're in trouble. Pray for Paul's feet. I'm just teasing, Paul. The floor is lava. The floor is lava is a simple concept. Stay away from the lava. The lava can hurt you. And yes, it's play. It's, it's a fun. It's, it's just a fun game. My kids love playing it. Well, is that why God has put us on this earth? Sometimes we fall into this aspect that we're just here to not sin. And honestly, the, the way that we're speaking today kind of sounds that way. That this is just a passage, a scripture passage, a sermon about not sinning. Just don't sin. Is that really what passage is saying today? Is that really what I'm saying today? Is that really what God is teaching us today? Simply don't sin. Is that why God put us on the earth? The answer is wholeheartedly no. Now, do we need to not sin? Yes. Do we need to avoid sin like it's lava? Yes, sin is lava. But is that why God put us on the earth? No, we have much grander things to think about. John says, listen, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, is righteous, as he is righteous. What does John want from us? He doesn't want just not sinning. He wants something completely contrary to sin. He wants righteous living. Because John is speaking from God, and God wants us to be righteous in our lifestyle. In fact, the way that we're going to put it today is the best defense against the devil is a good offense. David, your phone's interrupting me today. We're going to have a meeting later. <laughs> David, David's my right-hand guy. We love David. But the best defense is a good offense. Do you believe that in Christianity? Do you believe that we're simply, simply to avoid sin for the rest of our life, and that's why God put us on the earth? Just see how much sin you can avoid. From now until next Sunday, I want you to just see how much sin you can say no to. Now, that's not bad strategy. But I think there's a better strategy. I really do. I think there's an offensive way to look at this problem of lawlessness. And I think the scripture is going to give us a sweet little gift before we close today. Now, I'm going to bring up a passage from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 to 18. And I want you to notice something, okay? We're going to play a little bit of Where's Waldo here. And I want you to notice for offensive terms. Not like things that offend you, but things that are not defense, things that are offense. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. He doesn't just tell the church to not sin, not sin, not sin. Notice what he says. And we urge you, brothers admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. He goes on, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you what does Paul and John and James and the Lord Jesus have in mind for us offense righteousness not just 
not sinning. He has put us on this earth to be beneficial to our fellow man and to glorify God with our lifestyles. And the best way to do that is not defense. It's offense. It's offense for righteousness. And remember what Jesus did to defeat the devil. Remember the prophecy of Scripture that you will bruise his heel, devil, but he shall bruise your head. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? Just not sin? Just sit in a room all day and just avoid all the bad things in the world and then go, there God, I did it. I didn't sin. I lived my whole life sinless and that was the goal. No, Jesus came to live righteously. He came to obey God. He came to do the will of God. He came to defeat the devil by going on the offense. And I think that's a tremendous gift God is giving us here today to say, listen, our, our, our goal here today is not simply try to be lawless or try not to be lawless. Our goal here is to become righteous. In fact, you see this offensive term given as a promise to Peter. When Jesus told Peter, listen, Peter, I'm going to build the church on your shoulders. Okay, Peter, you're going to be the forerunner of the church. I'm going to start the apostleship with you and you're going to take the gospel and spread it to the world and I'm going to build the church on your shoulders. And Peter, your name means rock. And I'm going to build the church upon you. The true rock is me, but I'm going to use you to stamp the church. He gives him a promise. And he says this, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when you put a gate up, you're trying to keep somebody out, correct? That's why you put a gate up. Did you know the gates of hell have a, there are gates to hell? And the promise that God gave to Peter is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is on the offense, not the defense. Now the devil likes to trick us. He likes to get us to backpedal and gets us all hot and bothered by, by how we need to live and get us to avoid sin. And we've got to remember that is good. That's good to not sin. It's good to avoid sin. And that's all over Scripture. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is get up. Grab the armor. Grab the sword of the Spirit and go on the offense for righteousness. Because when we do that, the gates of hell will break and bust. Because that's how Jesus Christ did it. He went on the offense for Jesus, for God. He went on the offense for the law. He lived righteously and the gates of hell started to come down. And many of us here who are sitting in this room are proof of that. We are now alive today simply because Jesus thought offensively for righteousness. And he's telling us to do the same. This is the way to beat lawlessness and to beat the devil. Practicing righteousness. The way to not be a sinner is to think about something totally different than sin. When I was, uh, a few years ago, I was watching this show. It was a survivalist show. Some of you guys probably like those kind of shows. But this man had to go into the wilderness for about 10 days and live off the land. And he could use nothing except the little few things that he brought, a little flint, a little pocket knife. And he had to live entirely off the land. And this man was an expert of the wilderness. And during one of the parts of the show, he said this. He says, it's tempting when you find water to drink from any source of water. And he goes, I want to warn you over drinking stagnant water. Because what happens with stagnant water? It, what does it breed? Bacteria. Bacteria. Bad things. Things that can hurt you. Things that can harm you. He said instead, when you're looking for water, try to find a flowing source of water. Because when you find a flowing source of water, it can't breed that nasty bacteria that's harmful for your body. 
And that illustration stuck in my mind when I heard that, and I said, there it is. The way to beat lawlessness is not by sitting trying not to sin. It's by flowing in a righteous pattern. When we're on the offense for God, when we're serving God, when we're worshiping God, when we're gathering with the church, sin can't get us as easily. But when we're idle and we're sitting on the sidelines, it's not long before we breed bacteria. I told you in every one of these lessons, we're going to find something that glorifies God and benefits us, and we do here as well. God is glorified when righteousness once again beats lawlessness. Because it, it will and it's promised by God. If we rise up, if we grab our sword and our shield, and these are spiritual things, okay? When we go on the offense for Jesus and we follow his pattern, we will defeat the devil and we will take down the gates of hell. We will. It's a promise of God. When we do it God's way, the devil is the one who backpedals, not us. We gotta flip the tables on him. We gotta turn the tide and we gotta let him know that from now on, we're a soldier. And we're going to rise up and we're going to follow this till, up, till the absolute last moment on earth and that he's in trouble because we're going towards righteousness. God is glorified when that happens. And we are benefited when we conquer the one who used to enslave us in lawlessness. Isn't that amazing? That not only are the chains gone and we've been set free, but now we turn around and we take the fight to the one who was against us. And for the rest of our lives we go, it's me and you, Satan. Righteousness against lawlessness. And guess which team's going to win? The righteous team. And the devil hopes we don't figure the strategy out. He hopes we just sit on our hands and try not to sin. Or that we think somehow there's no law for Christians because that's a really good trap for him. But when he finds out that we've understood that we can beat him simply with righteousness. Simply by love. Simply by doing the things that Jesus taught us to. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And that's our application today. Let us go on the offense with righteousness. And how do you find righteousness? Just make up your own religion and do it your own way? No, follow Jesus. He is the perfect righteous one. He is the perfect law abider. Find Jesus, follow his pattern, and we will defeat the devil. And if we go on the offense, we will storm the gates of hell and it will buckle and break because it's a promise from God. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And I, as a pastor of the church, want to remind you of that today. The church cannot be stopped. If the church wants the same things that God wants, the church will win. It's a promise from God. And if we leave this place today and we say, from now on, we're going to live righteously, strive for righteousness in all things, and we're going to take the gospel to the darkness outside of these walls, the devil's in trouble. And so is the darkness. Not because of our strength. Not because of our righteousness. But because of Christ's. Because we are the church of Jesus Christ. And he is the perfect law keeper. He is the power against Satan. He is the truly righteous one. And we are on his team. My last question for you today before we close is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? And I don't mean like, academically. I don't mean up here. I mean, do you know him intimately, experientially? Do you know Jesus because he's taken those chains off of your soul and he's allowed you to live for brand new reasons? Have you repented?
Have you understood that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to break those bonds of slavery upon you and allow you to live for something brand new? Because as soon as you understand who he is, you understand that he came to set you free and he came to make you a soldier in his army against the devil and darkness. If you don't know Jesus Christ, my invitation to you today is go to God today. Go to Jesus today. Understand today that you are lawless by nature and only the righteous one can change that pattern. And if you want help in that process, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I'd love to sit down with you and show you from Scripture how you can have the confidence that you know Jesus, the righteous one, and you can follow him on the path to eternal life today and for the rest of your life. This is overcoming lawlessness. We all give all credit and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ who truly shattered lawlessness forever. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I feel like we've raced to, through some very important things today. And hopefully we haven't gone too fast. But Father, thank you for what you've taught us today. Thank you for Jesus. Once again, thank you for what he's accomplished on our behalf. We cannot be righteous in your eyes on our own. We know that. That's why a Savior had to come. But Father, we also don't have to live in the sinful patterns we once used to live in. We can be set free from that sin. We can be set free from that bondage. We can change our lifestyle simply by looking to Jesus. I pray for the souls in this room who might not know Jesus, that today would be the day they set their eyes on him and say, he is the one I need. He is the only one I need. And that from now on I will follow him. Father, shape this church into a church that are soldiers for Jesus and help us to chase and strive for righteousness in all that we do and say. And we thank you for this lesson today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.